welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a biblical conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the number one best-selling book of all times is the Bible, with over 5 to 7 billion printed copies. According to the American Bible Society, 50% of Americans in 2021 use the Bible. I recently visited Israel and Jerusalem. It's always moving for me to pray at the Wailing Wall, the Kotel. Behind the ancient wall are modern buildings, and one of them is home to an institution for biblical learning called Aish HaTorah. Aish means fire in Hebrew, and Torah is Hebrew for Bible. From the Aish balcony, I could see the Temple Mount, the holiest place for Jews, third holiest for Muslims, and significant to Christians. A very special place looking at the scenery, really connecting us from the past to our current state and hopefully our wonderful future. Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, is a special place. I highly recommend it to add to your travel bucket list. I was at Asia Torah to give a lecture about marijuana. When I started, people thought, hey, it's just weed, just a plant. But I educated the studious group on the developing brain, addiction science, prevention, and what I see on the front lines in the emergency department. I was at a holy place of learning, and I thought learning to protect your health surely must have biblical values. The rabbis agreed. What can we learn from the Bible and God about substance use and our health? According to Statista, 70% of Americans believe in God or a supreme being. Believers and skeptics alike can learn and benefit from ancient wisdoms. As it is written in Ethics of the Fathers, who is wise? One who learns from all people. I strive for that. And one of the reasons I absolutely love this podcast, because I learn from so many diverse and interesting people. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Ronit. Or should I say my new Aunt Ronit? We were just talking about uh, when I married into the family and we took a trip to visit you in the White House, how great that was. So I studied in yeshiva for a few years, and I still try to study the Torah and commentaries when I have time. And I was wondering if you had any insights on the biblical view of drugs and alcohol. Thanks. Thank you, Yoni, for your question all the way from the state of Israel. 
Yoni, my new young nephew, I'm so proud of you, juggling kids, full-time studies in computer science, and continued Torah studies. And with all that hectic life, you have time to ask a provocative question. I am not a Bible scholar, so I invited one to help decipher your question. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg is senior rabbi at the Boca Raton Synagogue, a growing congregation of over 1,000 families. His Boca Raton Synagogue is the largest Orthodox synagogue in the Southeast United States. His synagogue's credo is valuing diversity and celebrating unity. I really like that. Rabbi Goldberg hosts his very own popular podcast called Out of the Shadow and another one called Behind the Bima. The Bima is a platform in the synagogue where the Torah or Old Testament is read. Maybe one day, if I'm so lucky, I'll be invited to speak behind the Bima. Live to dream. To learn more about Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg and behind the Bima, check out the High Truth show notes. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, welcome to High Truths. Thank you so much for having me. Rabbi, we have never had a rabbi on the show. How exciting and a little bit nervous. Um, And uh, I thought you would share with the audience. Tell us what a rabbi is, and you're an Orthodox rabbi. Um, and uh, let us know, what does a rabbi do, and how is an Orthodox sure. rabbi different? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's an important conversation. I'm honored to be part of. A rabbi is a member of the clergy. Different religions have clergy members. They have priests, they have rabbis, they have pastors. And the rabbi plays that role in the Jewish community for the Jewish people. And it can be in a congregational synagogue setting. It can be in a school setting. Rabbis can play lots of different roles. The rabbi doesn't have a different set of rules for him. The rabbi follows the same set of rules as everybody else. Uh, Religious obligations and the religious lifestyle and the religious laws of Judaism apply equally to all. The rabbi is in a position to teach, to share, to inspire, to pastor. The rabbi is here to help officiate life cycle events, to answer questions of Jewish law, and to help people navigate the complicated world that we live in. Wow. Important role um, for all religions and for the Jewish religion. And how is an Orthodox rabbi different than than other sects? So many people know that there's a, you know, uh, I think most people don't know a lot about the Jewish religion, but that there are different types, just like there are different types of uh, Christians and and and. Um, you you are a more I don't know if it's a stringent but uh, uh, you follow more of the letter of the law uh, or if, how would you explain Orthodox? Rather? Well, there, there are different denominations of Jews, and the Orthodox is the most ancient, the oldest, uh, and longstanding, and it is a traditional approach to Judaism. Now, certainly, we apply it in the modern way, and we employ and benefit from all the wonders and, and the gifts of the modern times. But we remain steadfastly clinging to the Jewish laws that have been around for thousands of years and uh, both to the written Torah, the written Bible, and to the oral tradition of the rabbis that's been transmitted through the generations. That's so good. And so that's how I got connected to you. I um, went to Israel and I gave a few lectures at Asha Torah, a place of learning of of, uh, Torah uh, Bible studies. And I went there to teach about drugs and mental health. And I said, you know, I need to have a podcast with a rabbi. And they referred me to you. So you're, in addition to your uh, work as a rabbi, you kind of specialize um, uh, for people who or, or teach about drugs and mental health. And, and maybe tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I don't know that I specialize it in any sense of having any authority or training, but it's certainly um, a concern that I have. And one of the things I've tried to do in the rabbinate and in our community is 
in the challenges that are around us and affecting us, instead of burying our head in the sand from them, to confront them and try to tackle them head on, to educate ourselves, to expose ourselves to people who can educate us best, to try to remove the stigma from some of these issues, and to try to, to try to work on them. So, you know, for example, we started a podcast called Out of the Shadows, removing the stigma from mental health issues in the Jewish community, the Orthodox Jewish or the general Jewish community. And we've had episodes on anxiety and OCD and trauma and, uh, and other topics in mental health. Uh, and similarly, when it comes to issues of drug and alcohol, um, we're, we're involved. We have a wonderful partnership with a local addiction in treatment facility. And our synagogue and our synagogue community partner with this uh, in treatment facility in order to set people who are in treatment up with families who can host them on Shabbos on the, the Jewish holiday, the Jewish weekend, and uh, to be able to feel part of a non judgmental, safe, secure, warm, welcoming, supportive environment. And so, whether it's educationally or whether it's this partnership and collaborating in trying to tackle issues of addiction, um, both responding to challenges of people who are addicts, as well as preventatively trying to practice the kind of mental hygiene that can help people fall prey or avoid uh, falling into addiction. It's something our community tries to work on. And that's definitely very important. And uh, I could see why they sent me to you from Asha Torah. The the way I got to, um, to, to Jerusalem to speak was when my own uh, rabbi's wife had a relative who passed away in Borough Park, and the and it wasn't clear what he died from. And she said it was a suicide, or you know, people weren't really talking about it. This is a a black hat, very religious, secluded um, Jewish community. And uh, I asked if I can reach out, talk to the mom, and uh, I talked to the mom. Um, she opened up to me. She showed me some pills that were found that were, I think, hidden from law enforcement or the paramedics when they arrived. And I immediately realized that he died from fentanyl, that he was poisoned. And I would say he was killed because um, wow. he didn't mean to do that. And when I reached out to law enforcement and the medical examiner, and there were four young people who died that weekend in that community. And the because it's so quiet and people you know don't want to admit that there's a drug problem it spreads more right i realize i need to intervene we can't have um that this is you know hitting the jewish community just as much as it's hitting um any other community in america so thank you for for reaching out and doing what you do about that i have a question from my nephew my new nephew yoni he's in israel he studied in a yeshiva he's now doing um, secular studies and computer science. And his um, question is, what is the Bible's view? What is a Torah's view on alcohol and drugs? Loaded question for a Yeah, it's a great question. And we could spend a lot of time talking about it. How many podcasts can we fill just with that? (laughs) Exactly. There's there's so much we can share. And, And I think it's really important to... Um, take a nuanced approach. I think that's a general rule that's good in life. It's easy to see things in categories in black and white and for or against. But most topics, if a person's genuinely approaching it and analyzing it, you have to bring a, a more nuanced view to understanding it. So here, I think it's important to differentiate between alcohol and drugs. Uh, the Torah, our Bible, the Jewish tradition has a very different approach to each of them. It has a similar overlapping approach to both of them in excess, but in terms of fundamentally, it has a different approach to the two of them. And then even within marijuana, 
One can differentiate between medical marijuana, recreational marijuana, and that's why it's hard to talk about these things wholesale. You have to really get into it in a more. I'll, I'll get you. I'll, I will talk about that too, but I just want to interrupt just for my audience that there's currently no such thing as medical marijuana, but we'll get into that. Okay, good. I'd like to hear more about that then. So the, the total point of view, alcohol, let's start with the alcohol question is that um, alcohol actually has a, a very core role in, in Jewish life in the sense that wine, which was the ancient beverage long before we had the options of soda and Snapple and, and all kinds of other uh, Powerade and Gatorade, uh, at the time of the temple, we're talking a couple thousand years ago, wine was the beverage of choice. It was severely diluted and it was people had regularly and standard at every meal that they had. And then wine was also used to elevate experiences and occasions. So at a Jewish wedding, at a marriage ceremony, wine is used. Um, at a Shabbos or Yantif, a Jewish holiday, wine is used to sanctify the meal and elevate and introduce the meal. And there are countless examples. We use wine at the beginning to bring in the Shabbos and the bookend at the end when we say goodbye and, and exit the Sabbath on a Saturday night back into the weekday in the Havdalah ceremony. We use wine regularly. And the assumption in all these cases of wine is that the wine is being used in a moderate way. The person is not abusing the wine. The person is not getting drunk or intoxicated or losing themselves and losing their conscience and losing their moral clarity or judgment. The wine is being used in a moderate sense. And we know that there are health benefits. There's often uh, uh, different different research on it, and I'm far from an expert to, to suggest I'm going to quote it, but uh, the cardiology will talk about a glass of wine a day or what the frequency is, but there are components of wine that people think do have benefits. I know sometimes they come out to prove against it, sometimes for it, but one can drink a glass of wine and it can elevate a meal and give it a certain a certain. Um, dignity without losing themselves. You're even capable of ingesting a certain amount of alcohol and legally staying within a limit that you could drive. I'm not supporting that. I think if alcohol at any level, you should be exceedingly careful risking your own life and that of others. But the point is that alcohol by design is consumed, is appreciated, is enjoyed in a moderate way. And that's the part that the Torah endorses. When alcohol rises to the level of Abuse, if a person's getting intoxicated, a person's getting drunk, a person's losing themselves, then the Torah, the Jewish point of view, is fundamentally opposed to that. And that is for the following reason. And here's where abuse of alcohol and use of drugs to get high in any way is, is something that's really antithetical. It flies in the face of what Judaism says for several reasons. Number one, there's a very fundamental Jewish notion, and it's not just Jewish, it's the Jewish notion for the world. The verse says in the Bible, be very careful to safeguard your soul. And it's a mandate to be responsible with our lives, to live healthy lives, healthy physically, healthy mentally, healthy emotionally. And part of living a healthy life is a life that you're in control of, a life that you're present for, a life that you're practicing mindfulness, a life that you have clarity of judgment, um, a life that you're not numbing yourself or losing yourself in order to avoid, but a life that you can lean into and live most richly. So the very mandate of be careful, safeguard your soul and your life tells us to be careful with what we eat, what we drink, and if or what we smoke. The Talmud tells us 2,000 years ago, there was a great sage who lived in the second century named Rav, and he told his son Chia, do not ingest any drugs. And Rashi, the great commentator, explains that Rav was giving this instruction to his son in the second century, 2,000 years ago, concerned that a person could enjoy the high and would crave the experience over and over again. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with craving an experience, getting a high, being drawn and wanting it over again? What's wrong with it is, the human being, every one of us is composed with these two competing souls simultaneously. There's a part of us, a piece of us, 
which is the animal soul. The animal in us, fundamentally, biologically, to a degree anatomically, and depending on your approach of evolution, even within the understanding of evolution, we have a lot in common with animals. We eat, and we eliminate what we ate, and we reproduce, and we have this animal soul that has an animal impulse and an animal instinct, animal desire, and we even describe this colloquially. We use this in our terminology. Someone who eats and stuffs their face is eating like a pig. Somebody's room is messy, their, their room is a pigsty, or you're acting like an animal. Animal house, uh, the animal, we use the term animal to describe the most base and the lowest and the indulgent and the impulsive sense of our soul. We also have this godly soul, we believe. And the godly soul is the peace of God in each and every one of us. That is our worthiness. That is our self-esteem. That is the godliness, the peace of the divine in every one of us, our uniqueness. And the godly soul is capable of discipline and self-control. It gives us a conscience. We're able to make choices and have judgment. We're able to have self-awareness and we're able to regulate our behavior. And these substances, whether it's alcohol and excess, whether it's drugs, they're designed to lose yourself. They're designed to become mindless. They're designed to experience a high, which is an alternative state of reality from your core, very real, fundamental, lasting state of a reality. So when a person ingests or uses, indulges these substances and loses control or becomes undisciplined, they're forfeiting to a degree, they're compromising and weakening the godly soul, which really is surrendering our very humanity. What makes us different than an animal, an animal craves something, it eats it. An animal craves someone, it takes them. An animal needs to eliminate it, lifts its leg in a public place on someone else's car or tree. That's the animal. We don't wanna be animals. We don't want to forfeit our humanity, which makes us different and more elevated over animals. Our humanity is our conscience and our mindfulness and our presence and our choice and our judgment. So using substances, drugs, or alcohol to escape reality or to numb pain or to feel a heightened pleasure or to experience a fun, which is temporary and fleeting, is to choose the animal impulse over the godly soul. That's not the life that we're meant to God said, here's my world, and I'm putting you in it, and experience it fully. Experience it richly. It won't only be filled with pleasure, there'll be pain, but navigate it, because that also will lead to and stimulate growth. So for example, in the Jewish tradition, there's a prohibition, you're not allowed to drink wine in the temple. When the Jews had the holy temple in Jerusalem, so you were not allowed to enter that temple, the holiest place, intoxicated. Because when you are capable of getting the ultimate, most authentic, lasting high, which is to be in the presence of the divine, you can't replace it with a counterfeit, fleeting or temporary high through a substance. You're not allowed to. The Rambam Maimonides, who was both a physician and a great rabbi, he writes, he lived in the 12th century, whoever becomes drunk is a sinner and shameful, you'll lose your wisdom. If you become drunk before others, you desecrate God's name. So... It, it is not, it's, it's not a Jewish practice, and it doesn't bring out the best in people, and you don't make decisions that you're proud of later, and good things don't come from it. So there's one thing, enjoy a glass of wine, a l'chaim, a l'chaim, take off an edge, or remove an inhibition, or enjoy a moment, or celebrate an occasion, but never to the extent that one loses themselves, where you lose and forfeit your humanity, and you lose and you forfeit your reality, and you lose and you forfeit the present, you can never get it back and that's really an act of murder in some extent, is to, to forfeit your humanity, is to murder your godly soul. And, and that's something that we we don't believe in. Wow, murder. That's pretty, that's pretty straight. But what a what a great comprehensive rabbinical explanation. Um, the National Institute of Health um has you know several offices. One of them is the National Institute of Alcohol and Alcohol Abuse, and they uh, issued dietary guidelines for, for alcohol. 
interestingly, we just had a Passover and we drank four cups of wine. Four right. cups of wine is the maximum allowed for men. It's actually three for women at one setting or 14 for a week, seven for a week for um, uh, men and women. And it changes by age and it changes to even zero if you have medical conditions. So there are um, scientifically dietary guidelines for alcohol. I would imagine that the Torah and Halacha would agree with those. Absolutely. Torah and Halacha, Jewish law would endorse. Um, first of all, we embrace science and scientific findings. And when they're not in contradiction with our traditional legal system, that's what that's the authority for us to, to follow and to understand the law. We have a Jewish law that says we have to follow the law of the land. So if America has a, a law, you're not allowed to violate that law. And if the law is including this researcher, its conclusions about what's safe and, and what's healthy. Uh, on Passover, it's a, law, we it's, a, it's a medical recommendation. No, I understand that. But in terms of the guidance, at least for driving, right, yeah. where the limits are in terms of driving and the like. On Passover, we do drink four cups, but grape juice would qualify as wine and low alcohol wine could qualify as wine. So you could reach that religious level without necessarily, because for example, you know, somebody who's, who's uh, a recovering addict, we wouldn't, from a Jewish law, require them to engage alcohol and violate their recovery and their treatment. So grape juice would be a perfectly legitimate substitute. That's great. And, you know, saying that and hearing what a great rabbinical scholar said about being intoxicated, not allowing to serve God, uh, the priests were not allowed to serve God if they were they were intoxicated. And, and uh, um, as you mentioned, it's even like murder. But yet we see Fabrinians where people are getting drunk or Purim holiday where people are getting drunk or regarding marijuana. I saw headlines say Am Yisrael Chai, which is like Am Yisrael Chai. Chai means life. Instead of saying the Jewish people are living, they're saying the Jewish people are high. What about these exceptions? And I imagine it's because we're just human and not all of us follow the rules. That's exactly right. I mean, they're not they're not exceptions. They're they're violations, meaning a person who's embracing or endorsing or promoting that attitude or mentality is, is risky for themselves and for the other people who see it. And they're an outlier to what is the accurate and the and the appropriate tradition. It, it's no different than, you know, and, and I don't mean to minimize people who struggle with, with food. I, I, my whole life fluctuated with weight and uh, it's not a simple thing. There's all kinds of genetic predispositions and challenges for people with weight. So there's certainly no judgment to me with somebody, but, you know, but if a, if a clinically obese and dangerously unhealthy obese people in Jewish tradition would promote, you know, this is the way of life. We eat and we drink and we're merry and we're as obese as possible. And that's what Judaism says. No, it doesn't. Judaism does have um, room for and obligations and celebrates the role of food and uh, and tradition and recipes on our holidays, on our on our Sabbath, in celebrating certain Jewish life cycle events. But it wants us to do it in moderation. It wants us to do it in a way which protects and preserves and prolongs our life, and not the opposite. So it could be it could be a level of obesity being celebrated. It could be use of drugs or marijuana. It could be uh, drunkenness, intoxication. Those are outliers. I think that the legitimate leadership within the Jewish tradition you'll never find practicing, let alone promoting or endorsing, barely tolerating that outlier behavior. Interesting. I think that's a good good explanation. And um, the other thing that I was uh, uh, given when I talked to Jewish uh, people who say that in talking about marijuana, is they say that Moses gave marijuana as a sacrifice to God. And, and they quote, Kane Bosim, which is, uh, I don't know if that's a plant. And they said, look, even Moses 
gave uh, uh, used marijuana as an offering to God. Is that is that true? There is a translation. Rabbi Arya Kaplan, in his translation of the Bible, does translate a herb as being marijuana. Um, you know, but again, I don't I don't claim to fully understand. First of all, we're talking about a significant time ago, its potency or what stream of it or how it was used or what was extracted from it that contributed to some recipe. Um, I, you certainly don't see any reference in the Bible to anyone smoking in order to to get to some a hallucinogen or get to some altered state or discover God in some other way. That's never referenced. It's never quoted. It's never endorsed. And if anything, the Talmud which is after the Bible, but the Talmud has the tradition exactly the opposite. Interesting. Yeah, I would um, probably bet my life that uh, Moses did not give shatters and dabs and vapes um, and high potent THC to God. You know, I, 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 I'm that confident. Yes. <laughs> um, so we're talking about substance use disorder and uh, kind of mentioned cases where it, it does affect the community, um, the Jewish community, people have substance disorder. I always thought that, uh, you know, if you're way religious, whatever religion that is, that you're more sheltered from that, but it's still, it's still an issue. Um, and uh, what is in general is the rabbi's role? I know universally, um, we're really trying to get more people um, more faith leaders involved in the, the issue uh, for substance use disorder. Uh, a great many people do believe, many people uh, don't believe in God, but some people do. And that is a great way of dealing um, with um, th this challenge. Yeah, I agree. I agree fully. Um, I've unfortunately officiated too many overdoses and losses of young lives due to this disorder and seen families that have, have come apart and people whose dreams have been crushed. And it's it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And, you know, I think we have to, as I started out talking about nuance, I think it's really important to me to speak sensitively about this, that we, we can't use a large brush, meaning there are people who have predisposition or predilection towards addiction, and addiction is a disease. And so it's not as simple as, and certainly we should never blame the person, their surrounding, their family, their upbringing. There are all kinds of triggers that could lead to the particular addiction, but addiction is complicated and, and people struggle and it is a disease just like there are physical diseases. Addiction is a disease that should be seen as such that should have intervention and support and love and sympathy uh, and so on. To me, when it comes to the question of addiction with these substances, there are two responses that we have and the rabbi, the role of the rabbi, the rabbi, the role of the community, the Jewish community connects to both. One is the head on, is treating the symptom, right? Because whether it's drugs or alcohol, there is, there is a symptom. Uh, we have in our schools, we've had incidents of, of kids bringing edibles. We have adults who are who are smoking and drinking excessively and the health impact and the behavioral impact of how some people behave and what comes out when they do lose themselves. It's terrible. So I do think there's a role to talk about the statistics, which you are an expert in. Here's the data. Here are the statistics. Here are the dangers. Here are the addictive qualities. And to share and to promote and to teach us as people don't begin to know, even prescription medications and the level of that they are being exchanged and used and used off label and the addictive components of them and 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 some of the um the real 
epidemic that we're living through in those areas too, many are doing so blindly. They don't know. They're simply ignorant of what's going on around them. We send kids off to college campus without realizing what they're being exposed to, sold, what they're being dealt. And, and I'm not talking about even hardcore drugs. I'm talking about the overuse of, of ADD medications, of Ritalin and of, of others and how it's being and what dosage and who qualifies to get it. And I think there's the, the head-on treatment of well, the- People who died thinking they bought an Adderall pill and it wasn't Adderall, it was fentanyl. Right, right, absolutely, exactly. It's huge, the statistics, and it's very sobering, and I guess that word is, is is pun intended, but it's very sobering to become aware of and to confront those statistics. We have to better do a better job of not shying away. Historically, I think in a lot of religious communities, Jewish and others, you sort of didn't talk about these things. They were uncomfortable. You might embarrass. You don't want to admit that we have issues or their challenges or struggles. And those days are over as far as I'm concerned. I think not only can we and, and should we, I think we must. I think we're ob obligated from the pulpit, in our writings, in the community, educationally, with podcasts, using all the tools available to share the data, the risks, the dangers, to do so sensitively and lovingly and supportively and non-judgmentally, but to tackle it. The other area, which I'm really focused on, and I really believe from my core, what I've come to learn and understand for people who work and, and live in this space of addiction, of recovery, of drug, of alcohol, and so on, is it's never about the actual substance. It's about a hole in one's heart that someone's trying to fill with something else. So I'll never forget years ago already, maybe 20 years ago, that I visited someone who was in treatment. They were addicted to Oxycontin. And they had a legitimate chronic pain and they were addicted to pain medication and they went into in-treatment for 30 days. They weren't allowed to see or speak to anyone from outside the facility except me as the rabbi I, I visited, I came in. And I learned from him, he told me what he had learned in, in the treatment. What he had learned is he had a mother who was very, mother was very overwhelming, very judgmental, very demanding, very difficult. And he absorbed all of his mother's negativity, every interaction, every engagement with his mother. He absorbed her judgment, her negativity, her criticism, and he was numbing himself to that pain. The pain medication wasn't about his chronic physical pain. It was this realization of who his mother was or how she treated him or how she made him feel instead of actually... Yeah, instead of working that through, instead of resolving it, instead of understanding it, instead of being willing to experience it. He was trying to escape it and numb himself to it. And every encounter with his mother caused him to further become entrenched in this addiction. And that, in that treatment, what he learned was through support and therapy, how to become more comfortable with himself and the stories he tells himself, how to navigate complicated relationships, how to not run away from your life, but to lean into and fully live your life, even if it is at times difficult. And then he didn't need the, he didn't need the drug anymore. So it's not as simple. I don't mean to oversimplify, but I think with a lot of our young people in particular, we need to do more and better, not to respond to mental illness, but to practice and promote mental hygiene. What are the mental hygiene? Just like when your kid is young, I, I have uh, I have six daughters and a little boy, a son. My son is my youngest, and he's only ten. So I've I've had I'm, I'm, three of my daughters are married and and have children. But yet, when it comes to my son, I'm I'm brand new to this. He's only ten years old. But I've I've learned that when you're raising uh, teen boys, often you're you're chasing them to brush their teeth, to take a shower, to use deodorant, to practice basic hygiene. And as parents, we don't give up. We don't say, well, if you're not in the mood or you don't care, I won't care. We say. These are building blocks of a basic functional life. 
you've got to practice physical hygiene because you don't brush your teeth, you're gonna lose your teeth at some point in your life. And if you don't shower and take care of yourself, you're gonna attract all kinds of issues and challenges. And, and just like there are physical hygiene practices, best practices, there are mental hygiene best practices. We need to learn them, study them, promote them, practice them, model them. You know, technology has a huge role in, in impacting negatively our mental hygiene if we're not regulating our technology use and social media use and all the statistics and research coming out now about that. So I think that in terms of tackling addiction substance use, it's not just about the symptom, which is which substance and it's dangerous. It's about the cause, the illness, and the illness is the hole in people's heart. And why is that? Are people have a low self-esteem? Do people have um, mental health issues that are not being addressed? Is there stigma around them? Are there difficult relationships with a lot of a lot of tension, a lot of friction? And how can we give the tools to live with those challenges and navigate them instead of people escaping or numbing or pretending or avoiding them altogether? I think there's enormous work to be done in that area as a rabbi and from the community to remove the stigma, to talk about these things and to promote a culture of much better mental hygiene so that we're we're not waiting until that child is now addicted to drugs and we're, we're going through countless treatment facilities and hundreds of thousands of dollars and failed uh, recidivacy rate. But instead, we're early on seeing within, maybe that child doesn't socially fit exactly in. Maybe there's a learning problem going on. Maybe there's some hints, some signs, some indication. How do we intervene early on before this becomes something with a stigma, before they become feeling themselves like they're like they're excluded an outsider invisible how do we early on intervene in a way to fill that hole in the heart so they don't end up on, on connected to those substances as a way of numbing themselves absolutely i agree with you rabbi 100% you know before i um got the job at the white house the reason i wanted that job is i felt like i knew the formula of ending the prescription opioid epidemic like the like the gentleman that you met in treatment and it was a two-pronged approach people who already have an addiction who my patients were on buckets of medications and i just needed to keep them alive somehow because they were really at a high risk of of dying and the other one is to create a new generation of americans who are not addicted to opioid prescriptions or pain medications in the first place right. and we manage that with that formula and it's it's a uh, you you really talked about just now very eloquently about uh, the whole you know um, chain from from people who have a, a, the disease of addiction that that need treatment, but also very much upstream prevention and upstream prevention um, is mental health and mental hygiene, just like you talked about how to treat everybody whether they're outsider or not, how to deal with life challenges we all are anxious and depressed and sad and teaching kids as soon as they're born um right. how to deal with that you know like you fell down right i, I i'm a grandma now so you know, you know my little granddaughter falls down and she'll cry it's like you know you're gonna be okay we're gonna like we're right. gonna deal with that or distract that you know it starts as early as that so um intervention primary intervention in schools and i think this is where religious communities come in can teach that mental hygiene um uh, using you know god's laws even and and, and teaching mm. that for for the, for this population um you have a a tool and i know that it works because when i was in jerusalem at asia torah people i met people who struggled with addiction i said how do you deal with the withdrawals because when you withdraw from drugs you feel very anxious and they said you know learning is what helps my anxiety so i'm good um interesting so that was very that was very helpful. So 
I think, you know, primary prevention um, for, for fentanyl, when I talk about fentanyl, I haven't met anybody who uses fentanyl or died of fentanyl who didn't at some point in their life, usually pretty young, start with marijuana. Um, and they went to marijuana, I think because of a lot of the false advertising or even to, to start with um, self-treatment of whatever it is, pain or anxiety or sleep. Mm. Um, you mentioned stigma. And uh, I wonder if we talk about the, the Jewish view of stigma. Uh, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words could never hurt me. But that's not the Jewish way, right? Um, right. Words can kill, right? Right, right. Absolutely. I think so much of addiction is, is people who didn't physically, not necessarily victims of a physical abuse, but victims of, of verbal abuse and victims of social abuse. Words can absolutely kill when people feel invisible, when people feel inconsequential, when people feel they don't matter. That's the language I hear from young people as they turn to lives of drugs. They, If I disappeared tomorrow, would anyone notice? Would anyone even care? Do I really matter? Do I really make a difference? Why am I even here? What's it really all about? So what messaging did they receive that um, whether it was implicit or explicit or intentional or accidental, what messaging embedded in the minds of these people, the notion that they don't matter, they don't make a difference. There was messaging, there was language, there were words. And I think that's really dangerous. Uh, so absolutely. Um, stigma, you know, for, for a long time, and I remember even in my childhood, you, you didn't talk about these things. If someone went to a therapist, that was whispered, it wasn't spoken about, they would be humiliated, embarrassed. Today, young people go to school, and it's kind of like, who's your therapist? They quote, my therapist, and I was just at my therapist. And if you don't have a therapist, like you're a nobody. So there, there's a positive to that. I'm against having a therapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there, there is a benefit. We're trying to remove that notion of a stigma. If somebody has OCD or anxiety, and they're navigating the world with whatever they are today, um, there, there shouldn't be a stigma. There shouldn't be a stigma any more than if they broke their leg, or if they had you know, type one diabetes, and they needed to give themselves insulin. There shouldn't be a shame or a stigma in it. Person has to, the shame or stigma is when you deny it. The shame or stigma is if you're embarrassed about it. Shame or stigma is if you're not getting the treatment and the support and what you need to do for it. So I think the more that we mainstream and we talk uh, and we share uh, unapologetically, we can eliminate the stigma. And then the people who are suffering the most can come out of the shadows because it's in those shadows that people feel so alone and they they turn they turn to that those substances to give them company and to numb their pain and to give them a sense of worth. So stigma is how you treat an individual but also the words you use. So um I know there's a movement not to use or not to call somebody an addict to use a person with a substance use disorder because words matter but also how you approach that person. You know, in the con in the Jewish concept, there's a lashon hara, uh, bad words, and we're very, very careful not just what we put in our mouths, which right. is for food, but also what comes out of our mouths, or at least we try to, right. um, uh, or the teaching is. So, what comes out of our mouths is just as uh, as important, and how we treat people with challenges, right, mental, physical, or addiction, um, is important, and I think that's where your leadership really comes in. Yeah, we need to teach greater responsibility in our use of language and the power of language. We just celebrated Passover, as you said, and in Hebrew, Passover is Pesach, and the word Pesach means the mouth that speaks. When a person is enslaved, they don't have the liberty of speaking freely. And to be free, the liberty that we celebrated on Passover when we were set free, freedom is the freedom of speech. But 
we don't have a freedom of speech that lets you say whatever and wherever and whenever. We have responsible use of speech. You can't use speech to harm and to hurt and to defame and to slander. And we have responsibility in the way that we use our speech and the imprint that we leave on others and the messaging we give to others and and the the impact that we're having on the people around us. So I think that is really to be thoughtful in our marriages and as parents among friends and just everyone, how we speak. You can make someone's day, you could lift their life, you can create worlds and you can destroy them all through the power of speech. We, we're living in a time more than ever that we understand that because you know we, we have speech recognition. You could talk to your car and tell it to drive somewhere. You could talk to your Siri, you could talk to your, your um, Amazon, what's that called? Forgot the name. You could tell it to play certain music or tell you the news or adjust the thermostat. And when we speak, we create a reality. And just like we're learning to see with technology that through speech, you can change and affect reality when you speak. That's always been true about people around us. Technology is only catching up to the impact on speech on transforming things around us. Very important. Now, what, what I see happening nationwide on stigma, there's, you know, that's kind of the buzzword of the day. We don't want to stigma. We need to eliminate stigma. And I think that's very true for all the humanistic reasons that you've said. We don't want to stigmatize people, human being um, who are made in God's image. Um, but um, we do want stigma against the drug, right? Uh, 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 not for the human being, but for the act of being drunk or for the illicit drugs, um, illicit uh, fentanyl. We don't, I've seen people go completely the other way around where um, they normalize drug use or don't tell people not to use methamphetamines. That stigmatizes them. But yet there's a health perspective. So I think that as much as we want to eliminate stigma for the human being, we still want it to be able to say, you know, using drugs is unhealthy. And tobacco is a perfect example, right? Um, you know, the person who smokes, you know, is maybe, you know, your your mother or cousin or whoever, somebody that you love very much. But tobacco and the cigarettes, we don't like that. And we would hope that they stop. I think it's a great point. We have to find that and strike that proper balance between the two. And I think it's important to differentiate the people and the substance. And and it's education. It's all about education. Uh, it hasn't worked. Again, I remember my childhood, you'd get the policeman stand in front of the room and talk about or show the video of the car with the person who was drunk driving. You know, the kids are scared for a day or two. And I don't know that that does enough. But I think the data and the reality of what's happening, as you said, substances being replaced, not even knowing what you're getting is 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 really scary. It's really scary. And we got to send our children off educated, knowledgeable and and a little bit afraid, a healthy dose of fear. Because right. healthy healthy fear creates boundaries, and that's what we want is for them to live within the boundaries. Right, right, and and again, the the Torah teaches that exact thing: like a healthy fear. Healthy um, fear. I want it. We talked about what comes out of our mouth. I want to talk a little bit about what goes in to your mouth. And people know that um, uh, people who observe um, the Torah, Jewish laws, keep kosher. Um, I want to talk about that as we get into kosher marijuana. But maybe explain to our audience what is kosher. Yeah, the Torah gives us strict dietary laws, and um, in among animals, among fowl, among fish, uh, everything that grows naturally is automatically uh, technically kosher, not necessarily good for you. It's poison, obviously, you shouldn't be ingesting it, but from a technical kosher standpoint. So we know in order for a food to be kosher, we have to know how it's produced and manufactured, even as far back as its enzymes and the early stages, every ingredient that goes into a, into a food, it flavors 
Um, and uh, the Torah God wants us to be careful in our diet and regulating it and being in control of it and only ingesting the things that have God's approval. And is there a reason? Is there uh, a reason that this is kosher or that's not kosher? Is it, you know, cultural? Yeah. They didn't have pigs in the land of uh, Israel in those days or or is yeah, it? So there's debate among the commentaries. Some believe that the dietary laws promote greater health. Although empirically, I'm not sure that's true. If you look, there are people who keep kosher, but don't look or live necessarily more healthy lives. Some suggest the animals that are off limits are animals of prey. They're predator animals. And we ingest not only the flesh of the animal, but you're ingesting their character and their personality traits. And that's why we're told to avoid. Ultimately, uh, it falls under a category of what's called a chok, which is a law without a reason. Sometimes God says, because I said so, that's, that's why I want to, I want to teach you a greater sense of discipline. So if you, if I create you with an appetite and then you can indulge that appetite at all times and in all things, you're not going to become the best version of you to be the best version of you is to have an appetite and yet to learn to control it. So people have, for example, sexual appetites, but Jewish law also dictates when, with whom, where, how, we don't have a free-for-all of a morality that just says indulge a, an appetite. So every appetite that we have, the more disciplined we are in, in how we, we don't believe in, in living an aesthetic life, aesthetic life. We, don't, we don't not satisfy the appetite at all, right? We don't have vows of celibacy or fasting or abstinence, or we believe you're allowed to and should, and there's actually God's will for us to enjoy the pleasures of the appetite. But the greatest pleasure of the appetite is when we live for holiness, not for happiness. And to live for holiness is to have boundaries, is to separate. The word kadosh, which is holy, holy translates to separate and apart. So having a diet and only eating foods that are kosher is a way of living a disciplined life of only eating, not eating and indulging every appetite to eat anywhere, anything, anytime, but to be mindful and thoughtful in all that we put into our mouth. Wow, what a beautiful explanation. Um, so that gets us to the kosher marijuana issue. And I was really very much upset at the OU, uh, the certifying body, one of the many certifying bodies who put kosher symbols on marijuana. And I felt that they asked the politicians, but they didn't ask the doctors. They asked the businessmen and they didn't ask the clinicians when mm. they made that decision. And what happened is the the young man that I told you, my my rabbi's wife's uh, nephew in, in Borough Park in New York, when I talked to his mom, I asked her what was going on. She goes, oh, it was just weed. He was just using weed. She didn't think that, you know, in her mind, that was that was fine. It was this drug marijuana became sanctioned in the minds of, you know, this 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 mother of eight children in Borough Park. And I felt like this organization has blood on their hands. I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I, I even gave a, a talk in 770, which is a central area for the Chabad movement. And during that Shabbat, when I uh, sat with the women, they asked me, you know, their daughters are going for a year to seminary in Israel. Is it okay for them to use marijuana? And now thinking about that, they go and they 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 use, and the parents don't know to say that this is dangerous. The rabbis don't say that it's dangerous. The rabbis are putting kosher symbols on marijuana. So, you know, overnight, um, people think it's safe. And, and, and it's far from that. Like I mentioned, every day in the emergency department, I treat marijuana poisonings every single shift. Um, and, uh, and people, it's not their fault because they're being told that it's, it's healthy. And, uh, 
And I know that's a strong statement, but uh, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that we should be um, associating the word kosher with marijuana. I think the OU or any certifying agency, um, I want to say in their defense, but I think they were talking about in a in a medical uh, marijuana circumstance. And uh, obviously you have feelings on that. I'd love to hear them. I think the, the Jewish perspective and Jewish halachic authorities have taken the approach that uh, just like their pain management, uh, narcotics, pain medications that we wouldn't tell someone otherwise pain-free and healthy, they should be ingesting a narcotic or a pain medication, but we do allow for it for the management of, of pain. So the halachic Jewish authorities that I've read in the response to literature will see medical marijuana, marijuana being used for pain management in a supervised um, and, and um, prescribed fashion as not different than a narcotic or a pain medication. So, um, and, and that, that's what I've been taught is, is well, legitimate. I, I think that the rabbis got tricked. Because again, they asked, they got that opinion from the businessmen uh, and and uh, and the politicians. And I don't know if they were or peers from the outside that it was motivated by money. Um, but I could see your point of view. If they thought that this was medicine, of course, God would uh, allow it and even promote it. You can break every single raw in the Bible in order to save a life. But in which is why then it shouldn't need to be kosher. Meaning, I, I agree with you. If you thought it was a medical marijuana and no different than a narcotic or a pain medication, you don't put a kosher symbol on narcotics and pain medications. You don't need them because it's clear they can be taken. And the same would be true for medical marijuana. Right. Well, the, the difference is, and I when I say medical marijuana, I put it in quotations. And it's not just me, but it's also the prior surgeon general who said that this is there's no such thing as medical marijuana. I mean. Um, I, I went to medical school residency every four years. I teach a board exam. I take continuing medications in order for me to prescribe something as simple as amoxicillin. I need to do a physical exam. I need to get vital signs. I need to check for drug interactions. I won't recommend something that's not FDA approved, you know, without good research about it. And definitely I would risk the harms and benefits. And anybody in the United States, Israel is another topic and a different podcast, but anybody in the United States who has a medical marijuana did not have any of those standard of care. Any physician in the United States would lose their license um, if they uh, recommended uh, marijuana in such a way. So you're not fundamentally opposed. You're just in practice because it's not. Let's say it were it were clinical medical doctors who were who raised the standard of care to the same as giving a narcotic or pain medication, then you'd be open to its use. Yeah, in if, that this, if, if there are components of the marijuana plant that I could prescribe, um, there are four different FDA approved versions of components of the marijuana plant. The marijuana plant has 500 different chemicals in it. Many of them have never been studied. And only now, with, if you're hearing about all the Delta-8 and Delta-10 products and all these hemp fodums, they have not been tested on rats or mice. They are now being tested on our children who are coming into the emergency department with psychosis and children who have died um, from that. So we have a standard in the United States with the FDA, um, uh, whether people like them or not, but they have a high level of standard to approve medications to make sure there's proof they're they're pure to make sure they're not contaminants and the marijuana industry does not follow those medical standards that are set for any other medication that were prescribed well it makes sense what you're saying is compelling on the other hand if someone came to you and said i suffer from crohn's disease or i suffer from uh, debilitating anxiety and the only thing that's given me relief from this pain is marijuana 
So and I would I, treat that as a as a doctor. I would say, let's talk about your Crohn's disease. What are what do we need to do to create cre- um, do your Crohn? Actually, there is a lawsuit right now of a young boy who was using marijuana for his Crohn's disease, and that drove him to psychosis and suicide. And if if you're going to recommend um, marijuana to someone, you need to do anything you would do for any drug, whether it's an opioid, right? Or if it's an anxiety med, what do I do? I make sure there's no drug interactions. I make sure I know what I'm I'm understanding. And, and right. if this young man with Crohn's disease has anxiety or pain, let's deal with that. Um, right. In medical standard, and there are many ways before I would recommend a marijuana. Not only that, if you got me started here, Someone with Crohn's disease is probably immunocompromised if they're taking medications such as Humira or something, and that makes them more susceptible to infection. So when cancer patients, for example, say, you know, should I take opioids, which have been given this bad label, or maybe marijuana, isn't that better for pain? It's an herb. I'd say take the opioid, because if you're a cancer patient, you're immunocompromised, and 100% of the flour out there in the United States is contaminated. Um, We've had uh, you know, documented case in the medical literature where a young man died from aspergillus in his lung and the same DNA of his aspergillus in his lung was found in his stash. So no, it's safer to use an opioid where you know exactly what you're getting, um, where the doctor checks about, that's what those that's what those drugs are for. If you really have pain, then that's what opioids are for. Um, and at least you know what you're getting and there's a, you know, risk benefit analysis that the doctor makes. But otherwise, you know, people say, you know, that's, I would say, when I get a halakha question, I send them to you, right? The rabbi, you need to ask your rabbi. I don't know. (laughs) I think such and such. But if somebody with Crohn's disease say, you know, you know, should I be using this? Isn't it better for pain? I'd be like, ask your doctor and one that, you know, understands your Crohn's disease uh, as well and, and can coordinate. That's something that we don't quite have as well as we should have in the United States, being able to to treat your physical health, mental health, and addiction health all in you know one-stop shopping. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, that young man who has Crohn's disease and marijuana is at risk of dying. So I would be very worried. A lot. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. We learn from each other. So, so to add, to go further with the OU, I'm wondering if it's time for the OU to do teshuva, and teshuva is the the Hebrew word for repentance, because they sent a false message to mothers and fathers around the world that marijuana is safe because it's a plant. And they put these kosher symbols. Um, and then they got other, if they're OUs, you know, they're like the the the, the biggest uh, kosher symbol on the block. Then other people were doing that. Okay. And, uh, and I think that that sent a, a, a dangerous message and, and people have died. And maybe it's time for them to invest in what you talk about, mental hygiene, primary prevention. I think that would be a beautiful way for the OU to do teshuva, repentance, um, to make a statement that this is not healthy, to teach, um, you know, because parents just do what they're they're told and they look to higher authorities. The OU is a higher authority. And um, am I going off the deep end there? But <laughs> Well, listen, I, I you know, I don't... Um... I don't speak for the OU and I, and I, and I won't get involved in their decision in terms of the, their 
supervision of that marijuana, but I will say the OU is committed to primary prevention, education. They do work on these issues also. And, and certainly uh, I would I would gladly collaborate and partner with them and others who, who care about and are working, continue to work on these issues. Yeah. Well, I would hope that they 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 educate on that. It is not what they initially, you know, they initially said that this is, you know, safe in a plant and 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 took away the stigma that the drug had, which increased use. Um, and I understand that you're not speaking for them, but but I, I, I think that, that a very dangerous message was sent to the Jewish community with that. Um, as we wrap up, what are some key lessons the Bible, the Torah can teach us and all people um, uh, about this issue? Um, I, think, I think the Bible ultimately is a platform to try to help us live mindful, present, meaningful lives. Uh, in fact, the Talmud, again, written 2,000 years ago, calls our sacred and timeless Torah the Sam HaChayim. It's very interesting. It calls, it calls spirituality the drug of life and basically telling us that what people crave and look for in a drug, they could get more authentically and lastingly in spirituality and godliness and religion. And instead of escaping life, lean into it and live it fully and live it vibrantly and live it consciously. And I think religion gives us a lot of practices and parameters and gives us the, the wisdom, ancient wisdom, to be able to navigate. That doesn't mean that if you live a religious life, you avoid all pain and only feel pleasure. The religious person also struggles in their livelihood and their marriage and fertility and health. But it gives us the tools to be able to uh, navigate those issues rather than try to numb ourselves from them. So instead of escaping, let's live. We're living in an age that people can't live with discomfort or inconvenience, right? We we give everyone a participa participation trophy, and we don't let anyone fall and skim their knee, as you were talking about with your grandchild. And I think we should expose our children and ourselves a little bit more to, it's okay to get hurt, it's okay to feel pain, it's okay to cry, and we'll build up a resilience that will uh, give us the strength to not need to run and to escape and to use other tools like faith and spirituality and community and friendship and volunteering, which can be the substitute and give us the benefits of those same substances without the dangers of them. That's great. Um, it, there's a story I want to share with, with our audience about a Gentile who came to the Greek sages, Rabbi Shamash and Rabbi Hillel, and he asked them, and said, I'm going to convert to Judaism if you can tell me the whole Torah standing on one foot. And uh, Rabbi Shammah says, that's ridiculous, very disgraceful, and, and dismissed him. But Rabbi Hillel said, all right, this is all you need to know. All you need to know is that which is hateful to you, do not do unto others. That's the whole Torah, and the rest is just an elaboration. Now go learn it. So I think that that's beautiful. And um, as we conclude also... Uh, thank you for joining us from Behind the Bima, your podcast, thank and you. uh, maybe uh, share with our audience about your podcast if they want to hear more from uh, Rabbi Goldberg. I appreciate that. You can find on YouTube if you go to youtube.com slash Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Uh, on my YouTube channel, you'll find uh, our regular classes, but also the two podcasts, one Behind the Bima. Every week we bring on guests and have interesting conversations, and the other Out of the Shadows which is dealing with mental health, mental hygiene, mental illness issues, trying to remove the stigma, get some education on them. And I'd, I'd love to uh, engage people and study and grow together. So thank you for this opportunity. That's great. I think we got an amazing education, biblical proportions. I want to say thank you to my nephew, Yoni, for your question and wish you a lot of luck and uh, blessings in, in your future and your studies and your family and your education. And Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, thank you so much. We learned so much. 
um, uh, about the Bible and what they say about, uh, um, you know, addiction and drugs and alcohol. What an amazing education. And really, most of all, really thank you for reaching out and speaking up and, and, and uh, being a beautiful example of a rabbi um, to your community, but also rabbis uh, throughout the United States and in the world in tackling on this issue. Um, you have a, a strong voice that reaches a long way and uh, you use it in a beautiful way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for including me. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.